following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So this morning we're talking about worship. And it's a fitting way, I think, to end the series because in a sense everything that we've talked about up to this point has been worship. Every one of these practices is an act of worship. When you're serving others, when you're showing generosity, when you're engaging in Scripture, when you're praying, as you're experiencing spiritual rest and practicing the presence of God, all of these things are worship. Uh, Worship in the broadest sense is a life lived to the glory of God. It's a life which is a living sacrifice, as Romans 12 puts it. Laid down before God on the altar every day, every moment, and everything that we do is worship. But what I want to do this morning, just to give some focus to this time and and round out the series, I want to focus on the practice of our gathered worship. We've looked at all these ways we can worship God as individuals, worship Him in the course of our lives. This morning I want to look at the importance and the practice of gathering together as the people of God to worship Him and what that looks like and what that means and why we do this, why we practice this worship context every week. So to set the scene for this, I want to read you some words uh, that were uh, recently written on a blog post. There's a guy called Donald Miller. Some of you might have heard of him. He's quite a well-known Christian author and speaker. He wrote a book a few years ago called Blue Like Jazz, which was a really popular Christian book at the time. Uh, And he's he's a well-known Christian name. He's got a blog and recently... On his blog, he dropped a bit of a bombshell with these words, which created quite a stir for those people that know of him. He said this, I have a confession. I don't connect with God by singing to him. Not at all. I know I'm nearly alone in this, but it's true. I was finally able to admit this recently when I attended a church service that had, perhaps, the most talented worship team I've ever heard. I loved the music, but I loved it more for the music than the worship. As far as connecting with God goes, I wasn't feeling much of anything. I used to feel guilty about this, but to be honest, I experience an intimacy with God that I consider to be strong and healthy. It's just that I don't experience that intimacy in a traditional worship service. Hmm, controversial. And it was quite controversial. He got a range of reactions to that. Some people were critical of him and felt like he'd sold out the church. Other people, I think, felt like he was saying what they've always been thinking and giving words to this you know, expression that a lot of people felt too guilty to say. And I would imagine, as you think about those words and hear them, even in this group here, there are probably a range of responses and reactions to that sentiment. And we could pass the microphone around, you'd probably find there are all kinds of different responses to that. Some of you might resonate really strongly with what he's saying. That for you, you do struggle to really worship God through singing, and singing songs to God just doesn't do anything for you. You don't feel particularly connected to God through those. You don't feel particularly intimate with God through singing. You kind of put up with it, but it's not really you. And you just feel a bit bad about saying that, but you read those words and you think, thank goodness someone else is saying it for me. Others of you can't understand what planet he's on. You love singing. You could, you know, you got a life-size cutout of Chris Tomlin at home. And uh, some of, you know, the ones that don't even know who Chris Tomlin is, you're the non-song worshippers. But some of you, you know, love to worship God through singing, and that's, that's just what makes you feel so close to God. You cannot understand why someone else could not possibly feel the way you do when you're worshiping. And therein lies the great challenge. Diverse group of people, 
all kinds of different ways of connecting with God, different ways of feeling intimacy with God, and yet here we are, sitting in the same room and trying to figure out what it means to worship God together. So what I want to do this morning, I want to engage a little bit with the words of that quote because I think they are worth taking notice of. And I do think they reflect the sentiment of a lot of people. More importantly, though, I want to engage with Scripture and look at what the Bible says about the practice and the importance of our gathered worship times. In particular, I want to look at a psalm, Psalm 43. So you can turn there, and uh, while you're turning there, we've been in the book of Psalms a lot during this series. Uh, not, Not really something that I planned, but time and time again, you've probably noticed in the worship times that we've had, Uh, as well as in the teaching times, we've come back to the Psalms a lot. And it's no coincidence because the Psalms is such a rich resource for our our life in God, our life in Christ, for our devotion to Him. They give us words to say that often we just don't have. So I want to look at Psalm 43 as an expression of worship. It's not one of the more common or popular Psalms. You probably read this and wonder what on earth it has to do with gathered worship. But stick with it. Hopefully the meaning will become clear. Let's read it. It's only five verses long. Psalm 43, I'll read it to you. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So this short little psalm is quite likely to have been written in the context of Israel's exile. There's a 70-year period there where Israel, uh, or many within Israel, were taken into captivity into Babylon. They were deported from their homeland in Canaan, taken into the empire of Babylon, uh, where they lived for around about 70 years until they were allowed to return home. And from within that context of exile, it was really hard for Israelites to faithfully worship God in any meaningful way. Though within an empire that was largely hostile to God, didn't recognize God, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Uh, In fact, this empire of Babylon tried to force believers, tried to force followers of God to bow down before other gods, other statues, like the big gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up, if you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the context of exile where people trying to be faithful to God are confronted by these other gods, pagan images, and they are forced to to worship unless they do what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did and resist that. And in that context of exile, it was hard to remain faithful. It was hard to pray and worship publicly. And in that context, many, many Israelites longed, of course, to return home, but they longed for something more than that. And that's what this psalm brings out. They longed to return to the temple. And you hear that language in this psalm, let them lead me to your holy mountain. That's Mount Zion. That's Mount Zion back in Jerusalem. That's the mountain where the temple was. That's why when the psalmist refers to the altar, he's talking about the altar 
in the temple complex. That's where Israel would gather. That's where Israel would worship God and sing His praises. And so you could imagine, and it takes a little bit of imagination, but you could imagine that this psalm was written by someone like Daniel. Someone living in the context of empire, living in the context of exile. And just like Daniel would pray at night in this upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem, as it says in the book of Daniel, you can just imagine that this psalm was written in those kinds of circumstances. Somebody like Daniel praying and longing, praying toward Jerusalem and longing to return home, longing to come back into the land, back to the temple, back to gather again with God's people and worship Him in the place that He had designated. The temple, of course, was in ruins in this time. The Babylonians came in and destroyed it. But there's that longing within Israel to return and to rebuild and to worship God again in His sanctuary. Now, that can be a little bit difficult to translate into our context because we don't live in the same kind of situation. We don't live in a context of physical exile or geographic exile. But in the story of Scripture, we see ourselves as followers of Jesus still living in some state of spiritual exile. Peter in the New Testament, when he writes to Christians, he says, as foreigners and exiles wage war against the sinful desires within you. And Peter's addressing Christians as exiles. He's not writing to people that were in physical exile. He's writing to Christians and he's saying, simply by virtue of following Jesus, simply by virtue of being united to him, you are in exile. Even within your own country, even within your own region, even within your own culture. And this is true of us. We live as spiritual exiles, even though we're not under some kind of enemy occupation anymore. We live as spiritual exiles because we live in a culture that is largely resistant to the gospel. We live as spiritual exiles because we're surrounded every day by a culture and a society that tries to make us bow down to other gods the God of self, the God of money, the God of sex, the God of power. These are the gods of our culture. And we're under constant pressure to give our lives over to those gods. We, we spend our days in workplaces, in social situations, in organizations, sometimes even in families, where people are following all kinds of different stories, all kinds of stories that give meaning to life and make sense of the world for them. And those stories can so easily get a grip on our heart. They can rub up, up on us. And it's very difficult for us often to live faithfully as the people of God in the cultural context that we find ourselves, this post-Christian context. When you see yourself as a spiritual exile, I think it's a bit easier to relate to the sentiment of the psalm. This is written by a physical exile, and we share in the experience because we are spiritual exiles. We're aliens and strangers, resident aliens, but still foreigners, even within the land that we live in, because we know God within a culture that doesn't know Him. So within that context of exile, you have the psalmist longing to return to the temple. Now we know as Christians that there's no one physical place that we need to go anymore to meet with God. Uh, there's some of us in a few months' time that are going on this pilgrimage to Israel to see, partly among other things, the remains, the ruins of the temple. But we know 
that God's presence doesn't fill any one particular place anymore. There's no particular location that we have to go to meet with God. But in the context of the biblical story, in the New Testament, who is the new temple? What has replaced the Old Testament temple? Well, in the first instance, it's Jesus. And by extension, it's all those who love and follow him. We as the church are the new temple of God. That's why Peter again says, you've been built as living stones into a spiritual house or a a temple for the dwelling of God's spirit. The temple is no longer a physical temple of brick and mortar. It's a spiritual temple of living stones who come together to worship God. we're, We're always, our bodies are always temples of God, temples of the Holy Spirit, wherever we are during the week. But the temple of God on earth today is most clearly seen when the people of God come together. That's why Jesus says, wherever two or three of you gather in my name, there I am. It's, it's a reference. It's a temple reference. Wherever the people of God come together, small groups, communities, church settings, we are coming together not just as a church, not just as a club of people, not just as a group. We are coming together as the spiritual temple of God, the dwelling place of God's Spirit. That's why I think there is something special about God's presence in these gathered times that's unique and distinct from the way we experience God's presence on our own. Any one of us that has the Holy Spirit in our lives can experience God's presence during the day, but there is a special presence of God that just as God's presence filled the temple in Solomon's day, the Shekinah glory of God that came down and rested in the temple, so as the people of God gather together, there is a special presence of God that comes. There is a special and unique filling of God's Spirit in the places where God's people gather to worship. God inhabits the praises of His people. So when you put all this together, I think a really beautiful picture of gathered worship emerges. That you have in the psalm the picture of an exile, somebody in exile, longing to return to the temple to worship God. And in the same way, we, as spiritual exiles in our culture, should have a longing, should have a commitment to gather with the spiritual temple of God, the gathering of God's people, to worship Him. We are so saturated every day by the stories of our culture, the stories of other gods, other things that try to give meaning to people's lives. This time is a formative time for our hearts to be shaped again around the cross of Christ. This is a time for us to be anchored again in our shared story, the gospel, the dying and rising of Christ, and the big story of Scripture. That's what we're doing when we worship. We are proclaiming our story. We're enacting our shared story. We're rehearsing and performing the gospel again. We're telling again the big story of Scripture from creation to fall to redemption to new creation. And we're confessing again that in the center of that story is the one whom we call Lord, and He's Jesus. And and we're going to confess our allegiance to Him in opposition to any other God of our culture, any other deity man-made or otherwise, that our culture and people in our culture bow down to. We come together not just to sing songs that make us feel good. 
We come together to confess that Jesus is Lord. And that is a deeply countercultural thing. It's a deeply subversive practice in our culture. Because we are saying Jesus is Lord and therefore the gods of our culture are not. Just as in the first century, to say Jesus is Lord meant implicitly to say Caesar is not. We are saying Jesus is Lord and therefore money is not. Therefore power is not. Therefore I am not Lord, but only God is. And that has a really formative formative effect on our hearts. Our faith can so easily be eroded uh, in the situations we're in during the week. But as we gather together, our faith can be renewed by one another as we confess our identity together as the people of God. And as we worship together, it's not just something that we're doing. Worship is also something that God is doing to us in shaping and forming our heart. As we worship together, God is training our hearts to love him more than anything else. He's pressing these words deeply into our souls so that he becomes the object of our greatest affection. So these times of worship, even when we might not feel like it, even when we don't sense that anything in particular is going on and whether or not we connect with the words of any particular song, these times of worship are so formative for our heart. They identify us again as God's story. They initiate us again as the people of God. And they confess again our allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Messiah and Lord, that confession that can be sometimes hard to maintain during the week. Now, of course, you can worship God in all kinds of ways during the week. And we should. And and nothing that I'm saying negates the importance of a whole life of worship. I want to make that really clear. I know some of you connect to God and feel His presence most when you're in the garden. You know, some of you feel most connected to God when you are practically serving someone else. Some of you feel most connected to God when you're surrounded by nature. There's different things for every one of us. That's part of what Donald Miller is saying in that quote, that he doesn't feel connected to God through singing in particular. That's okay. There's all kinds of ways that we can experience the presence of God. I think of the movie Chariots of Fire with um, the actor that played Eric Liddell, the Scottish athlete, who said, when I run, I feel his presence. You know, there's a man using his gift of athleticism, and in the context of, of doing what God made him to do, he feels the presence and pleasure of God. That's wonderful. That's worship. We should embrace the full diversity of ways that God has given us to worship him. And yet, that doesn't negate the importance of gathering together to worship God. It's not either or. Sometimes we can place such an emphasis on worship out there that we neglect worship in here. And I'm not talking about any physical place. I just mean the gathering of God's people. Sometimes we put such an emphasis on the sanctification of all of life. that All of life is sacred. All of life is is a sacrament. And that's good, and I'm all for that. But then subtly, that can become, so why bother with church? I'm worshiping God out here. I'm doing my thing. But if all you do is worship God out there, and it never becomes a commitment to worship God with the people of God, I would suggest that you are neglecting a huge stream of biblical worship that runs right through the scriptures, not least in the book of Psalms. Our individualistic culture will tell us 
that what really matters is just my connection to God, however that happens. At home, in the garden, when I'm serving someone, however it happens. But God is not just interested in forming individuals. He's forming a people. He's forming and he's shaping and he's calling and he's purifying and making holy a people of blessing. A people for his own possession. And so with that comes a commitment to being part of a people and worshiping as part of a people. We find out who we are in the context of the whole community. We find out who we are as we stand with the people of God. You're not just saved as an individual. You're saved into a community, into a family, and called to worship God with that family. The very composition of that psalm testifies to this. You you think about it. Let's say that psalm was written by Daniel, one individual, one individual worshiper within Israel. But over time, like every other psalm, that one got gathered up into a collection. In fact, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is made up of five collections of songs. And these are songs, they're poems, Hebrew poetry. And they became not just expressions of individual worship, they became the songbook of Israel. They became the worship songbook of a nation. And they became, and they still are, the songs that Jewish people would pray and would sing and would recite and rehearse when they gathered together. When they went on pilgrimage to the temple when they were allowed to return there. As they ascended the foothills to Mount Zion, they'd do do that singing the words of these psalms, particular psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. When they gathered around the various feasts and festivals of Israel, Yom Kippur and others, they would use particular psalms to express their worship together. You could even imagine, I don't know whether it happened, but in the context of exile, maybe secretly, groups of Israelites praying and singing the words of some of these psalms together. This became the songbook, the praise book of a nation. So the psalms work at two levels. They're individual songs, but they're also a glimpse into the public gathered life of Israel as a worshiping people. They show us how Israel worshiped together. And in the New Testament, the church took these psalms and incorporated many of them into their worshiping life. Basing them, of course, around Jesus now, the one they confessed as as Lord who's come to fulfill the whole story of Israel. And even little pieces of the New Testament are likely to be songs that Christians wrote in praise of God, like the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 and Colossians 1. Little fragments of songs or hymns that Christians would sing in praise of God. So there is a long tradition right through Scripture of gathering together to worship. Of course, What that looks like can be really varied. One of the ways that that can look is singing. And there's a long pedigree of singing through the scriptures. The people of God sing as an expression of praise. It's an important part of worship, but it's not the only part. And this another little qualm I have with that quote of Donald Miller's, that it feels at times like he's reducing worship just to singing. And therefore, however you feel about singing kind of determines how you feel about a worship service. But there are many ways in the context of our worship services that we worship God. Another one is communion, arguably the most important part of our worship. We do it every week. We gather around the table and we are nourished again by the grace of God. Last week in base camp, that's our four and five-year-olds, they had a time of talking about and reflecting on the Last Supper the Lord's Supper, and they had communion set up in the center of the group. 
and kids were invited to take communion, which is a whole other discussion, but uh, they were invited to share in communion if they wanted to. But before that, they just had a time of reflecting on who God is. And that's not an easy thing, I think, for a lot of kids. I mean, I know my son Josh is in that group. Getting him to sit still and reflect on anything for any period of time is pretty hard. But they just had this time where, where the kids could just be still and reflect on the story they'd heard about the Last Supper and reflect on God. And so they did that for a few moments. And then one little girl in the group blurted out, I hate boys. <laughs> All kinds of ways to worship, right? That was, that was her spiritual reflection. <laughs> but all that to say, among our children's areas, um, Biffy's doing a wonderful job, and, and her leaders, of exploring different ways for our kids to worship and engage with God, creating environments where they're reflecting on God or on how much they hate boys, whatever it's going to be, but just teaching them what worship means. Times of reflection are a part of our worship. Times, and, and we have these uh, when we're not singing, but we're just reflecting. And we're allowing music or song or words just to wash over us. That's an important part of our worship. Times of prayer, where either one person's praying or we're collectively praying. I love sometimes we hear voices from within the congregation praying. That's worship. It's our gathered worship. Uh, hearing scripture read. Reading scripture together. It's an act of worship. Hearing teaching Hearing God's word expounded, being nourished on God's word is an act of worship. Even, believe it or not, taking up an offering is an act of worship. That's why we call it an offering. It's a sacrifice. It's an offering. It's part of our gathered worship. At times we've recited liturgy. We've had times of silence. We've recited a creed. All of these are ways of worshiping and they all come together. In the, in, in the context of a worship service. We don't do all of them every week, but there are different ways that people can worship. And I know the different things that we do connect with different ones of you. And, and different people find it easier to worship God in different ways, and that's fine. All I would say is, if we're worshiping in a way that doesn't naturally connect with you or make you feel a certain way, don't take that as an excuse to disengage. Don't take that as an excuse to, to switch off. That brings us to the very last part of the psalm that I want to look at. The very final verse I find strangely encouraging in the psalm. Verse 5 says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. The reason I find that encouraging is because the psalmist here is expressing the fact that his soul is feeling a bit downcast. And it gives me permission to feel that way too sometimes. There's such pressure. I don't know whether we created ourselves or what. We often feel such pressure, I think, to come into worship feeling up. You know, feeling full. Feeling ready to go. Feeling ready to worship, ready to dive in and just kind of right there on the, on the threshold of God's throne room. And honestly, I don't feel that way sometimes. You know, like this morning, I've been hungry. It's, it's not easy to worship God when you're hungry. You come into these contexts and your soul is not always feeling close to God. You might be here this morning and you feel like you sit here with a downcast soul. Maybe you're carrying a really heavy burden, either for yourself, for someone you love. You feel burdened. You feel like your soul is in anguish. It's not easy to worship God when you, when you have a downcast soul. 
Maybe you just feel really distant and dislocated from God. You feel empty and dry spiritually, and then you sort of get into this setting, and it's just hard. You feel like God's a billion miles away. You might stand there mouthing the words, but you don't really feel anything in particular. Maybe you just feel exhausted, tired, physically depleted. It makes it hard, doesn't it? It makes it hard to worship. Maybe you feel distracted by things going on around you and unfocused and mentally scattered. And then the worship elements themselves may either help or hinder us, depending on how we're feeling and how we're wired. And it might not be your favorite song. And it might not be your favorite worship leader. And sometimes you might feel that the music is too loud or too soft, and it might not align with your own tastes and preferences about worship. And those are times when we've got to make a choice. We've got to decide how we're going to respond to God in those moments of gathered worship. And I love the way the psalmist responds when he's got a downcast soul. And he says in the second to last line, For I will yet praise him. I think maybe the word yet is the most important in the whole psalm. Yet. In spite of. Regardless of. Everything that is going on within me. Everything that is going on in my life family, work, whatever, everything that's going on right now in this worship gathering, yet I will praise him. That's a hard thing to say. But I think that's my biggest beef with that quote of Donald Miller, that he says, you know, he came to this worship service, he didn't feel like it connected him with God, didn't feel much of anything in the service. And he really seems to make the test of his worship whether he feels close to God. I mean, it's wonderful to feel close to God. And I pray that we have that feeling often in the context of these services. But your feelings are not the barometer of your worship. Our feelings, our emotional and physical and mental state, that is not the test of whether worship is genuine. The test of our worship is whether we are willing to give God our praise regardless and sometimes the most precious worship to God is worship that's done when it's really, really hard. That's why David in the Old Testament said, I will not give God something that's cost me nothing. That's why worship is sometimes called a sacrifice of praise because it is costly. It costs you putting aside sometimes your own tastes and preferences putting aside your own mental and emotional state and making a choice to worship God. It's not easy, but that's, I think, the most genuine, the most precious kind of worship. Worship in spite of our feelings, not because of them. I think of the story in Acts of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. And they've just started out on this missions journey where they're taking the gospel through the Middle East and parts of Europe. The world seems to be opening up ahead of them. And then they get to Philippi, and pretty soon they're in jail. They've been apprehended by the authorities. The, the mob has been stirred up, and they're spending the night in jail. They don't know how long they're going to be there. As far as they know, this could be the end of the road. This could be the end of their life. They've been beaten up already that day. So they're, they're, they're bloodied and bruised and tired and in jail that night with their missions career and even their lives at risk. And what do you find them doing there at midnight in that jail cell? Sitting around singing hymns to God, praying and singing hymns. 
Now, I'm going to guess that they didn't really feel much like worshipping that night. I can imagine they would have had a pretty downcast soul after everything that had happened that day. And yet here you see these two men making a choice to worship God. And this was before the jail cell doors flung open and the miracle of escape happened. This is when they didn't know how things were going to turn out. But they still made a choice. And I think it's a choice that we are faced with every time we walk into this room, every time we gather to worship, whether we're prepared to say those words, I will yet praise him. I don't feel like worshiping today. I'm just too hungry. But I will yet praise him. Today is going to be a day of worshiping out of obedience, maybe. Not necessarily worshiping out of my feelings. May not be your favorite song, may not be your favorite style, may not be your favorite tastes and preferences. I will yet praise him. Because ultimately it's not about how I feel, it's about how worthy God is. And he is just as worthy and just as expectant of our worship, regardless of what physical, mental, emotional, or even spiritual state we come here in. So we've got an opportunity to practice this this morning because... A lot of you are very, very hungry. And, uh, you know, one of the wonderful things about that is it places you right in this position where you have to say, I will yet praise him. So we're going to have a time of worship, and we won't make you stand up for the whole time. We won't be that, quite that cruel to you. For some of the time we will. We're going to move towards communion in a few moments. And before that, there's going to be a song for you just to reflect on and just allow the words of praise, words from this psalm, Psalm 43 and Psalm 42, to wash over you, to really soak yourself in God's presence. But I encourage you as we worship this morning to have that picture from this psalm, that picture of you gathered here as a living stone in God's temple. This is not a club, it's not just a gathering, not just a group of individual worshipers all doing their own thing. This is the temple. This right now is the clearest place that anyone could point to on planet earth and say there is the temple of the living God. It's the gathering of God's people. So I want you to picture that in your mind as you worship and see yourself as part of that temple. And then ask yourself what it means for you to say this morning, I will yet praise him. In spite of what's going on in your life, in spite of what you've brought through these doors this morning with you, in spite of everything you're carrying right now and the state that you're in, what does it mean for you to say, I will yet praise him because he is my saviour and he is my God. Amen. Let's pray. We'll prepare ourselves for this time of worship. Jesus, we just picture you right now standing here in our midst. Just inviting us to worship you. Inviting us to bring everything that we are and lay it down at the foot of your cross. Jesus, I pray that you would move us past a self-centered way of worshiping. And we're sorry, God, for the times when we've made it all about how we feel and what does or doesn't appeal to us. Jesus, we fix our eyes on you. And we confess this morning that worship is for you. It's about you. It's to you. Thank you that you... Stand here in the middle of this holy temple. You're the cornerstone and we're all living stones gathered together. Lord, as we worship this morning, we make a humble choice to bring our lives and to bring our church to you in spite of how we're feeling. And as we gather around your table, 
I truly pray that you would nourish us at the deepest level of our being by your grace and by your mercy and by your extravagant love. We thank you, God, that when we worship you, we do feast. We feast on you. We feast on food that the world just doesn't know. Thank you, Jesus, that we can consume your grace so freely. And in doing so, we find ourselves consumed by you, by your love. So we worship you, God. We worship you through reflecting, through taking communion, through bringing our tithes and offerings, and through singing to you. And we do this because you are so worthy of it. We give you our, ourselves. We give you our worship, our Savior and our God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.